debt that has come due despite multiple follow-ups, you may have to consider sending a statutory demand. A statutory demand is a creditor's formal written request requiring a company to pay a debt within a statutory period. Currently, that period is 21 days and extensions are rare. A statutory demand can be a shortcut to proving that a company is insolvent as the law states that a company can be presumed to be insolvent if the demand is not answered properly. If the presumption of insolvency has arisen, a creditor can file a winding up application against the company. We rarely discuss the downstream process following a statutory demand. In fact, things might not go so smoothly as the debtor can apply to the court for an order for the demand to be set aside. If the debtor does not have any grounds to have the demand set aside and cannot comply with the demand, then we are looking at insolvency. This week, we have Luke Whiffen from Hilton Bradley Lawyers joining us to share his experience in this space. Thank you for coming on to the show, Luke. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a director at Hilton Bradley Lawyers. Hilton Bradley Lawyers is predominantly an insolvency law firm. We do do commercial uh, litigation, even some class actions. We have two sides to our practice. One is acting for liquidators, administrators in winding down companies or restructuring debt. The other part is acting for creditors against debtors. And in that respect, we tend to go down the insolvency route of issuing statutory demands or bankruptcy notices and using that as a tool to either collect or get their debts back through uh, liquidation of that company. So how did you get into insolvency, Luke? Well, just landed in it. The first job I took, that was the first job I could kind of get. Uh, it was in a commercial litigation uh, practice. Did a little bit of property, bit of family law, didn't really like those. So gravitated towards insolvency. I liked it. It was more flexible, less rule-driven, solution-based. So yeah, I, I guess I walked into it and had a little bit of affinity for it. Yeah, sure. And how long have you been in the industry now? Well, Mm, since 1999, so nearly 24 years, yeah. Luke looks amazing for someone who's been in insolvency for 24 years. Expensive moisturizer. Oh, right. There you go. (laughs) You'll have to share the brand later. So what do you find most rewarding about insolvency? Um, Two aspects. It's it's when people are in a bit 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 of trouble. They might have typically ATO debt because that that's the debt that people leave last. If if you're a if you're a business, you're going to pay your employees, you're going to pay your supplier, you're going to pay your landlord, and you're going to necessarily probably put the ATO off last. Not because you're anti-government or anything like that, but they're not providing a service. Their bills don't come up as regularly, so we we tend to to, to restructure that type of debt. It's most satisfying when you you're helping out a company that perhaps it's not their fault. So say you're you're a subcontractor, a builder, and your your principal builder. They fall over and they owe you three, four, five hundred thousand dollars for work you've done. And then because of that cash flow deficiency, you can't pay the ATO. You know, it's not your fault and it's it's more of a domino effect. So they've got a perfectly viable business, but because of someone else's inability to pay, it ruins their business. So to be able to restructure that debt, it's 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 a rewarding thing to see someone with, you know, 10, 15, 30, 40, 100 employees be able to continue to operate that business is is rewarding. The other side of it is people that might have debts. Now, we always think about the debtor, the poor debtor, yep, and, and, and maybe they might be one of these people where someone else hasn't paid them, uh, completely alive to that. But uh, when 
businesses rely on that money to come in and we can give them uh, an easy, cheap, quick return to get that money back, uh, that's rewarding as well because it keeps those businesses running. It does sound like very important work and very contextual. You can't really have a one-size-fits-all or really understand the true nature of an issue until you fully understand the situation. That's right. That's right. And that's part of our job is to explain to the various stakeholders why this has happened and why it's a good thing that you know, the solution that that, that company is offering is helpful to everyone. In those negotiation rooms, have you ever had to enter into a screaming match? Um, sometimes, although it, it, it's just generally not helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've never picked up a phone to another lawyer and been able to convince them through a loud voice to do what I want them to do. You know, they're inured to conflict. Most people in business are inured to conflict. Taking a long handle to them is so normally quite counterproductive. If you turn it into an arm wrestle, you take it away from the issues. So. I think maybe in my younger days, yeah, yelled at people and I probably ended up getting a bad result. So it's it's not very helpful for yourself either. So it's it, it really doesn't serve a purpose. Do you know what was really interesting with anger? Whenever someone uses anger, it's because they're trying to force somebody to do something that they want and mm. they're just constantly getting more and more frustrated and emotional. And when you do that, you kind of, you start to have that narrow vision and then you don't really see any other solutions, even if it pops up, because you're just so focused on driving your point home. So you can miss a lot of details in that process. But I, I learned that as well in our business. You know, we haven't had any defaults or losses or such, but in a previous business, we were dealing in second mortgages and caveat lending. And it was my job to recover funds once they did go into default. And we did have, you know, people entering the room, highly emotional, ready for a screaming match. And when they see that you're calm and you're going to have a discussion, you're going to listen to them and just, you know, it is what it is kind of situation. You're not going to engage in that behavior. It does take a different turn because when you don't evoke that emotional response and antagonize uh, anyone you're supposed to negotiate with, where you're supposed to actually come to terms and work together, that actually does yield a better benefit. But so many times I have seen, you know, muscle come out in terms of yelling and screaming and trying to push your way forward. And like you said, it never has worked. And we've managed to settle all of our um, recoveries out of court as a result of just being a calm listener and trying to calmly navigate the situation. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of listening. Because people, and, and, and no one in a negotiation, no one wants to sort of hear that, oh, you've just got to listen, you know, because people think that's a weakness. Mm -hmm. But when, when people come in angry and fired up, it's because they have a preconceived view that you're not going to listen to them. So um, one of the best things you can hear from people, and I, I've picked this up from, you know, listening to various other negotiators, is when they come in and they're, they're firing at you, if you can get a, if you can get the phrase "that's right" out of them, so they'll say, "Look, yeah, this, 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 this is." And if you say, "Well, what I'm hearing is that that's a concern, and that's a concern, and that's a concern," and if you can get the phrase, and it, you'll be amazed how many times you hear it. If you can get, if you can get the phrase "that's right" out of them, um, you're a long way down the road to solving the problem. Because what it turns into is it turns into a personal problem 
um, who's stronger, who's bigger, who's scarier, who's being listened to. And that's something very separate to what the issues are. So if you can, if you can separate from someone who's trying to dominate someone or make them feel weak or make them crumble and to someone who's focused on the issues, particularly if you're on the right side of the issue, you might not want that. You might do the opposite. You might try and fire them up and get them emotional and take them away from the issues. But if, you, if you've got the right answer, you've got to take the emotion out of it. And that's when you've got to listen, repeat, and get those words, that's right. You're right. <laughs> I've heard, um, you know, that's right basically is an acknowledgement that you have understood the position. So they're not now worried that you haven't misunderstood some piece of information and whatever you're going to say, they're going to be open to listening to it because of reciprocity as well. Mm. If you can listen to them and paraphrase it back and they can understand that you've heard them, it means that they can trust that the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth has considered what they've just said. Yeah, absolutely. Look, now I want to move to the main topic area for the episode, which is statutory demands. Uh, it's a space in which you've got significant expertise. Just starting with the process for filing one, you know, if a creditor is owed some money from a debtor and they haven't been paid by whatever terms that have been agreed, they've decided, okay, my follow-up responses aren't being heard. I'm not able to get anywhere. I'm going to go and file a stat demand. Firstly, is that the right course to take at that point? And secondly, if it is or when it is, what do they need to do? So if we wind it back just a little bit and give it perhaps a little bit of context, you will go to a lawyer and they don't care about your business in the same way that you do. And it's a crucial crucial distinction. They'll care about your business, but just not in the same way that you do. And they're like all other humans. They like to do the least amount of thinking for the most amount of gain. So probably what they'll tell you to do is issue a, issue a letter of demand and they'll take all this information you know, and then you'll send it to them and then your debtor will throw it in the bin, right? And then you'll file a statement of claim and the debtor will go, great, I'll file a defense and the court will go, great, I've got too much work and they'll get put down the track three months later and then, you know, they won't do anything else and you'll get a judgment or if they don't follow defence, you get a default judgment and and then you'll stick it on the back of a stat demand, okay? And you lost six months and you've lost a ton of energy and you've paid your lawyers X thousands of dollars. So if you've got an undisputed debt, the best thing to do is to not go through a further letter of demand because you've sent emails, you've followed them up. It's not the, you know, they're not, they don't hit 91 days and, you know, you've done nothing and you're going to send them a stat demand. You've, you've spoken to them, you've asked for the payment. Right? So what you should do is skip those legal fees, skip that process and issue a statutory demand because the statutory demand is, is a way to enforce a judgment debt. But the key with the statutory demand is if it's not disputed, you've delivered the crate of milk, right? And they haven't paid and they've said, sorry, I'd like to you know, get six months to pay or I'm not going to pay you because I don't have the money. You don't need that judgment. You go straight to a statute of demand and you swear a one page, you know, five or six paragraph affidavit saying, hi, I'm the director of the creditor. I've got access to the books and records. They owe me $5,000. And so immediately you can issue that with a 21 day time limit. The advantage of the creditor statute demand, particularly in relation to, well, pretty much exclusively in relation to un undisputed debts, is you cut out a lot of costs, 
time and energy. So that's the real advantage of it. Technically, if you were to go and consider what is a disputed debt, an example of that is where you've made a claim and the debtor or alleged debtor says, sorry, I don't actually owe you that money at all because this, this and this wasn't done. Yeah, the milk was off. You didn't deliver it or you delivered it to the wrong address or that's not me. So when you do, when you skip that process and go to a statutory demand and prove that it is undisputed or at least it should be objectively viewed as undisputed, would you also accompany that with some proof or just the affidavit? The affidavit is the proof. You, you, you would attach a statement like, like your, your, uh, your invoice statement. And then there's a reason why it's not for individuals, it's only for companies because companies are taken to have a certain level of competence. You've, you've undertaken to act in a, in a certain way. So it's a streamlined process. Is there a minimum amount that you need to have owed to you to uh, submit a statutory demand or make a statutory? What, what is it called? Do you submit one, make one, send one? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a perception that's widespread and, and quite common sense, right? You, you said file, right? Because we're lawyers, we file things, there's courts involved. It's a statutory demand and the statute is the Corporations Act. So the Corporations Act's got the rule. So it's not actually a court instrument. So it's a, it's, a, it's a demand issued under the statute, which is the Corporations Act. So you don't need to file it. You just produce it, right? Mm-hmm. You sign off on it, you swear the affidavit, and then you serve it on their registered office. And is there a minimum amount? Yes, $4,000. Was that changed recently? Was it always $4,000? Uh, before COVID, it was 2000 2000, 2021, uh, it was moved up to $4,000. And is there an amount of time that it has to have been outstanding? Yes. So it's 21 days from the date of service and it's very strict. Date uh, of service of providing the service for which you're claiming the money or date of service from so when you served the statutory demand? The, the uh, legal service of it. So once it hits their registered office, it's got to be 21 days after that date. If it's posted normal post, there's a postal rule. So it's taken that's about seven days to serve it. And you've got 21 days to either pay the demand or set it aside. And if you don't stick to that time frame, that's it. The stat demand sticks. So it's a very strict timeline. So you need to take it very seriously. They're quite easy to set aside and probably going to a question we're going to ask later. But to set it aside, you've just got to have an arguable defense. You don't have to prove that you would have won, but you have to prove that it's arguable. It's not like, oh, the dragon ate my homework. It's, it's something that has some level of substance to it. And if the court's satisfied that there's some level of substance to that, then the demand will be set aside. But if you don't file an application and you don't pay it within the 21 days, the demand expires after 21 days and you're deemed to be insolvent under the Corporations Act. Going back a little bit to say I was owed a debt, did the service yesterday, I said you've got to pay me the next day, they didn't pay it to me. On the third day, can I service that demand? Yes, Provided it's in line, it's got to be due and payable. So if you provided those goods yesterday, your terms of trade say it's payable within 30 days. You can only issue the demand on the 31st day. You might have a debt that's payable. You might have terms of 30, 60, 90 days. It's got to be due and payable. Say you haven't put any terms to it. We're a little bit disorganized and you just sent an invoice. Is there a standard amount of time? Is it usually 30 days? 
to be a horrible lawyer. It's uh, whatever's reasonable. So you've you've made a bit of a problem for yourself, small one, but generally like 30 days should be fine. If a debtor wants to set aside the demand, they have to do that within the 21 days. And do they also have to serve an affidavit with their reasoning on why it should be set aside or do they have to provide more proof? They do. Within the 21 days of being served, and that can be a contentious issue because people who have done it 22 days after will say, oh, no, I didn't receive it till a week later. So that's always a fight. But the way we do it is we do it through express post and they'll give you a a delivery time down to the minute. Putting aside uh, the actual time for service, you've got 21 days in which you need to file an application with the Supreme or Federal Court. That application needs to be accompanied by an affidavit, which sets out the grounds on which you say it's either disputed or you have a set off. You need to, within that 21 days, not only file those documents, uh, and we've had a few people slip up on this, you have to serve those documents, right? So filing it's not enough. You file it on the 21st day and you serve it on the 22nd, you're done. Your application fails. So it needs to be filed and served within the 21 days. And that's not business days at all, is it? No. What happens if you've been served a statutory demand and you have filed and served a statement for that demand to be set aside? Mm -hmm. What happens then? Time for compliance with the statute demand is frozen and you will go to court and you'll fight it out. So you'll say, look, I've got an arguable case. I've got a set off and the other side will oppose it usually and you'll have the court deciding whether that statute of demand sticks or not. You know, there's going to be cost consequences. You know, half a day, day in court, maybe more. You'll have a filing fee, you know, nearly $4,000 and the loser normally has to pay the costs of the winner. How quickly does a court date get set? It'll depend on the jurisdiction, but you're certainly not looking at weeks, you're looking at months, uh, which, you know, some debtors will use that. If they're cash flow constrained, they'll put on a BS argument. A lot won't. I mean, a, a lot will put on genuine dispute applications, but it, it, it can be given given that the court's going to get around to it in sort of two to three months and then maybe a judgment, you know, maybe on the day, maybe four weeks later, it'll give a cash-starved company a bit more time to pay that demand. Yes, right. So they use it as a way to lengthen the time in which they can repay it as mm. long as it's before the court date. Some people would say that all commercial litigation serves that purpose. It's not a quick process. You're not looking at being in and out in a couple of weeks, that's for sure. Say you've received a stat demand and you're not able to pay it within the 21-day period, as well as you're not able to have it set aside uh, or dispute it. Well, you can negotiate. You can say, look, you got me, but you know, you wind me up, you'll get nothing. Here's part of it. Let's enter into an agreement or a deed of settlement and we'll extend it out. And of course, that's you're, you're kind of at the mercy of the creditor there. You can say, look, I'm solvent. I don't agree necessarily that it's due and payable or I owe it. And that's a bit hard when you've got an expired stat demand. Or you can look at restructuring your debt or going into liquidation. If you choose to restructure your debt, is that something that you, you would voluntarily choose to do at such point as you realize, okay, I can't repay this stat demand or or do you have to wait to be wound up? No, you can do a um, what's called a, and it's and I suppose it's in the name, is a, a voluntary administration. So you'll appoint an administrator and then you'll go to creditors and you'll try and cut a deal with them as a group. If, if you don't feel like you can cut a deal with them as a group, 
you can enter into a creditor's voluntary administration where you don't wait for the creditor to wind you up, you you put yourself into liquidation. In that voluntary administration stage, is that where you come into the deed of company arrangement or the, you know, the popular docker that I've heard so much about? Yeah, it is. A deed of company arrangement, I think the simplest way of looking at it is you, you go to the creditor as a group and you say, look, if you wind me up, I've got some plant and equipment, I've got some contracts, I've got some receivables and in a liquidation scenario or a fight sale scenario, you're all going to get five cents in the dollar. However, I'm prepared to inject some capital or pay it out of future profits where you're going to get, say, 20 cents in the dollar. But in exchange for that, you're not going to put me into liquidation. You're going to allow me to continue to operate. You're going to allow me to run the company. And then what you do is you go to a a vote and you have an administrator who vets the process. They go in, they look at the books and records. They get their own independent valuation of plant and equipment. They look at the receivables and they say, I've checked it all out, guys. My view is you're only going to get five cents in the dollar. Now, the director's come to me and he said he's going to pay you out of trading profits over the next two years, X amount of dollars, which is going to give you 20 cents in the dollar. I mentioned earlier the scenario where you've got the builder who's who the, the developers may be fallen over and they've got a good cash flow going forward. And what they can do is pay more than their their assets they currently hold at a fire sale might be worth. So then the administrator holds a meeting. The whole point of the administrator is you've got an independent person. You don't have to trust the director to do it. And they hold a meeting. They provide a report which sets all this out that's been vetted by them. And then you have a vote. And creditors will either vote to put you into liquidation or they'll say, "Mm, okay, we think your deal is pretty good. What we need you to do is promise to do what you said you would do in a deed. So that's your deed of company arrangement. So, so it's, just, it's just a promise by the company that they're going to stick to this better deal than liquidation. Say, for example, in that developer situation where on a fire sale, the assets would be worth significantly less than what they would be worth upon completion. Say if you're mid-construct or you're at the start and they want to allow the developer to move through that process. When you offer 20 cents in the dollar to a creditor, are they likely to take that if, say, if they waited until the completion completed product, they could potentially get 70 cents in the dollar? Well, I I think the issue there is you're saying, I can't go any further because I don't, if, if you, if you creditor pursue your debt, I can't pay that at the moment. So it's a cash flow issue. Sure. If I had enough cash flow, I could go to the end and pay you the 70 cents in the dollar. But the reality is that you need your money now. You want it now. And you're not going to let me do that. Now, the upshot of the the docker might be, look, you guys all agree to leave me alone for six months, 12 months, and then I'll complete the project and you'll all get 70 cents in the dollar. That might be the deal. Right. Uh, And your administrator will go in and vet whether that's actually a legitimate proposal and whether that actually works and say to creditors, yeah, yeah, look, if you leave them alone for 12 months, you'll get 70 cents in the dollar. What you put forward there might be an actual solution. Sure. Yeah. Do they have to, is there any legal obligation to offer the best commercial offer you can offer a creditor at such point or over a certain term? Not strictly. The administrator's report might point to that and say, look, they're going to make X amount of dollars and they're only going to give you 20 cents in the dollar. Will be up to you to decide. It's, it's it's by far from a perfect solution, and you know the administration period only lasts four weeks. But you don't, you just don't have the time to go through things at that finer detail, and and that might explain why the administration process can be open to abuse. 
might not be that popular with creditors, but you can't be always aiming for a perfect solution because you might get it one in a thousand. Yeah, sure. But there's 300 businesses that might go under that were valuable businesses. What happens to the directors as well? Do they ever or at any stage become personally liable for the debts they incur under the company? In a deed of company arrangement, they might put their name to it and say that they're going to be what's called a deed proponent. They're going to but. In terms of things like insolvent trading and breach of their director's duties, they're largely things that come into play in a liquidation scenario, which is a good reason why uh, directors might want to sort of rattle the tin and get a docker up and give creditors more than they'd otherwise get because they're going to avoid personal liability. So personal liability really comes in in a liquidation scenario. Say, for example, none of the creditors are happy with the docker and they decide to move to liquidation. Mm-hmm. Is that the point where directors most likely engage in phoenixing activity? They're probably more likely to engage in phoenixing activity before things hit the fan. Usually they're going to need a bit of time. They're going to want to do it under the cover of darkness. If you've got an administrator in, you just can't go shifting assets around. So so a phoenix is where your director moves assets from one company to another without paying for them and leaves the creditors of the old company or the old co to be in it, claiming from a company where the assets are gone. Is there a time period between which a director has moved assets out of the company and when they do face you know, a liquidation event that those assets are recoverable? Yeah, it will depend on the type of claim, but the, the law recognises that directors might do these things. So if they're doing it to a related company or they're doing it to avoid creditors, it's, it's, it's not like a third party has taken money out of the company, like a preference, which would be sort of six months, depending on the type of transaction it can be it can be up to sort of two years for an uncommercial transaction and to a related party it's four years so that that pretty much covers the field because people five years out they're not really aware of any problem that might happen so four years in my humble opinion is is uh, a long enough period to go back but it's a fairly extensive period is that where unfair preferential claims or unfair preference claims come into play they can they can unfair preference claims say you're owed money and you get that out of the company that eventually goes into liquidation. You've got this sort of a suspicion that these guys are in trouble and you get the money out, you put pressure on them and you get it out. So you kind of jump the, jump the queue and you take your money and it's not there to share equally with all the creditors. Because the, the principle, the Parry Passu principle is that once a company sort of hits the fan, starts to, starts to get into trouble, then all creditors should share equally. So if you put pressure on them because you've got a suspicion they're going under and you get money out and you don't leave other creditors money, that, that's saying that you've been unfairly preferenced. You've got a priority that's a bit unfair. And so if you do that within six months of it going under, a liquidator is going to come and try and claw that money back so that everyone shares in it evenly. Say you didn't put any pressure on the debtor at all in the time that six months prior, could you still be up for an unfair preference claim if you've been paid out of you know company funds? You'll have a defense called a, a good faith defense. So a, a defense to an unfair preference is that you didn't have a suspicion that the company was insolvent at the time you got the payment. And that word suspicions, even amongst a lot of lawyers, gets missed. And they say, oh, oh, oh we didn't know that the company was insolvent. So it's, like, it's, it's, it's not whether you knew the company was insolvent, it's whether you suspected. And suspected is something, in, in the case law, is something that arises above a mere idle wandering. So all you've got to do is just have a, a suspicion, not knowledge, that these, this company might be in trouble. 
and then you can't take that money. But if you take it, like you're paying, you you, you provide goods and, you know, there may be 120 days, but, you know, everyone in the industry is 120 days, whatever, and, oh, they paid me. Great, right? Well, you're probably okay. There are a few other defences. If in that six months you provided, say, you got 100000 but you provided $80,000 worth of goods, then you're only liable for a preference of 20000 You can still run the good faith defence. So there are defences open. Yeah, sure. And how do you prove that, you know, your suspicion or someone's suspicion was above a mere idle wondering? Uh, that'll be up to the liquidator. And normally what they'll say is, well, you served them with a stat demand. That- so that's where you can come undone on, on your own action? Correct. <laughs> so so what you'll do is you'll say, oh, the liquidator will say, well, what do, you, what do you mean you've said in this email that we've got? Pay up. We know you're struggling, but we're your major supplier. You better pay us. So it'll be a question of evidence. You can get hurt by your own attempts there. Right. To say like you're a regular um, service provider, you've been paid over the last six months, you know, a monthly fee, but the last fee wasn't paid. Technically, you could lose or have a, a huge discount applied to the fees you've been paid in the last six months. Yeah. I, I think of all the things that makes that make Gwidators unpopular, it's probably unfair preference claims. Yeah. Sure. Do you have to approach everyone who has been paid out of the business in that six-month period and discuss with them the nature of why they were paid at that time? It probably wouldn't be the nature of a discussion. It would be it would be just a letter of demand that would go from the liquidator, and then you'd shoot back a letter saying, "Well, look, you know, uh, these payments weren't." out of pattern for what they've always done. We didn't send them a demand, you know, and our, our defence is uh, our good faith defence. We didn't have a suspicion. Or you're running a count defence where you say, look, I, I might have got 100 grand, but I gave them 120 grand's worth of goods. So the, there'll be a discussion by sort of, you know, formal correspondence. When we met before as well, you had mentioned a waterfall of priorities in the docker. Say you've got a first ranking mortgagee sitting there. Do they have to agree to to any such discount or, you know, 20% in the dollar for the recovery of their funds if they have the first mortgage or they're a secured creditor? No, they sit outside that regime. The security, you know, the mortgage, the charge, whatever, they're designed for these type of situations. That, so, so the docker will only deal with unsecured creditors. The, an unsecured creditor might have security for a house worth a million dollars, but if it's owed two million, it'll be, a, it'll be an unsecured creditor for that extra million. So it will have a say in that respect, but otherwise it sits outside that docker. Thank you so much, Luke, for all your amazing insights. I've learned a lot, especially that you serve a stat demand, not file, send, make one, uh, which is great. Now I can say the right thing. It's a good lesson for people deciding whether they want to actually serve a stat demand and what the implications are and how far they're willing to go down that rabbit hole if they decide to make uh, that move. One thing I really liked about Hilton Bradley Lawyers and uh, some of our discussions in the past, Luke, was how you structure your fees for your clients. It's quite unique. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So we have what's called a, a no win, no fee, no disbursements model. Typically, you'll go to your lawyer, you'll say, oh, I want to wind these people up. They'll say, that's great. Put ten grand in our trust account. You know, roughly four thousand dollars for the filing fee and six thousand dollars for our work. So what we do is we do the work on a speculative basis and we pay the disbursements. We'll only ever give you a tax invoice if we recover for you. So if you've got a debtor of twenty five thousand dollars, you say, Luke, I want you to serve a stat demand. We'll do that. If you don't get paid, 
uh, you won't see an invoice for us. You won't get it for our legal work or the searches or any disbursements. And then when we move to the winding up, file a winding up proceeding in the Supreme Court. We'll pay for the filing fee and we'll do the legal work. If they pay, we'll get the debtor to pay our costs. If they don't pay and they're wound up, you won't see a bill from us. So you won't see it for the legal work or the disbursements. We will be sharing the risk of that that claim with you. You don't have to worry about, oh well, I'm gonna I'm gonna chase this 25 grand debt. I'm gonna change it into a 35 grand debt because I've got to pay 10 grand to my our lawyers. So yeah, we, we'll share the risk there and take that uh, prospect of further legal fees off your plate. It's one of the best pricing models I've come across, but it doesn't fully account for the value and expertise you bring to the table at the beginning, does it? Well, the value we've got is we've got a, we've got a lot of good clients. We issue a lot of winding up proceedings, and we've we've managed to get some scale there. So. It, it, you know, we want up a company, we're going to take a hit for it. Most of the time, we're going to get your money back and we're going to get the legal fees. What we find is rather than going to one-off transaction where client doesn't get their money and we get $10,000 worth of, of fees and disbursements and we never hear from them again, we get repeat clients and we get scale. So it works for us. And if it works for us, it works for our clients. Thank you for listening to In Debt with Ulrika Lobo for another week. Have a lovely weekend.